Well, the scene was San Diego Superior Court. Two men were on trial for armed robbery. An eyewitness took the stand, and the prosecutor moved carefully. So, you say you were at the scene when the robbery took place. Yes, I was. And you saw a vehicle leave at a high rate of speed. Yes. And did you observe the occupants? Yes, two men. And, the prosecutor boomed, are those two men present in the court today? At this point, the two defendants sealed their fate. They both raised their hands. We are picking up in Romans chapter 3 in Paul's courtroom, where in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is laying out the case against humanity, the case that not one of us is good. We are all guilty. The, witnesses on, the witness on the stand um, in this courtroom that is, who is condemning us is the law, and the two dopey criminals are us. And by the end of chapter three, we're all going to be those guys raising our hands uh, because we're all those who are guilty. In Romans chapter two, uh, we left off last week with Paul talking about circumcision and that it's only of value if indeed you keep the precepts of the law. And Paul ends chapter two uh, saying in verses 28 through 29, He writes, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So it is about a circumcision of the heart, meaning a heart that belongs to Christ and seeks obedience to God's precepts. And beginning here in chapter 3, Paul will now deal with any, you know, devil's advocates out there, uh, any any people who are looking for loopholes or outs, you know, or out clauses, uh, those trying to poke holes in arguments, create straw men to to tear them down. You know, Paul's going to be arguing against that, uh, arguing against people trying to shift blame or, you know, minimize or try to justify themselves. And Paul's no stranger to debate. He has been debating the best and the brightest of that day in Athens and in Corinth. In fact, uh, he's most likely in Corinth writing this letter to the Roman church in AD 57. Uh, So this book of Romans is a demonstration of how Paul chooses to lay out the gospel in a persuasive manner. And and you can't uh, get to the gospel without the great problem that needs to be addressed, the problem of sin. And you can't address the problem of sin without the law. And you can't address the law without the Jews, the chosen people of God through whom his word was brought forth and taught and shared and recorded. And in every great city in the Roman Empire, there was a synagogue where Jewish people were reading the scripture, they were teaching it, they were studying it, and others could come and hear as well. And Paul himself was a Jew of Jews, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. But instead of leading him towards righteousness, it led him down a murderous path of killing the followers of Jesus until until Jesus appeared to Paul 
and got a hold of his heart. And Paul then channeled all of his determination and energy towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of uh, beating up others, Paul himself willingly took beatings and stonings from his own people to share the gospel. Why? Because Jesus had so thoroughly and completely changed him. The scales fell off his eyes and he saw God's word fully and in its glory and that it led not to another Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire, but it led to Jesus on the cross to bring redemption to the world. And in the resurrection, Jesus conquered all the powers of the earth. He conquered sin and death, our true enemies, and he took all authority on heaven and on earth for it was given to him. So no longer do we seek to save ourselves, but we trust in the one who has done it as the word promised he would and as the law necessitated an atonement be made. He made it and he fulfilled it in full. So true circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So his praise is not from man, but from God. It's about getting right with God. So then after teaching this in chapter two, Paul then poses some rhetorical questions seeking to address the thoughts that you know, might be floating around in the heads of his readers, some dissenters, some devil's advocates. He says, beginning in Romans 3, uh, verse 1, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Right? If, if circumcision is only a value through obedience to the law, and if uncircumcised Gentiles through obedience are considered to have, you know, the circumcision of the heart, you know, being equal with the Jews as being set apart to God, what advantage then is there for the Jew? Well, Paul says in verse 2, much in every way, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul says, the oracles of God. So among the Greeks, which Paul is at the moment among the Greeks writing, uh, an oracle was considered a divine saying. So Paul is referring to the fact that God has spoken and that the record of what he has said was entrusted to Israel and to Israel only. They were entrusted with God's divine words. It is an amazing thing when you think about it. Amazing and fabulous and wonderful that God entrusted his words to his chosen people so that we can know him. And seriously, what an advantage it is to know God through his own words, to know what he calls righteous, to know what he calls wicked, to know his character, his attributes, the God who is one in three and three in one, the God who made all there is, who has no beginning and no end. What an advantage that is. And now Paul in verse three, he begins with two more questions. He says, what if some were unfaithful? What if some were unfaithful? And reading the Old Testament, you know, it's just kind of one disappointment after the other. God, you know, gave his people everything and they continued to disobey him, to complain, to blame. Uh, when times were hard in the wilderness, you remember, you know, they wanted to go back to Egypt to slaves again. You know, they had it better there. You know, when, when times were good and they, they had every comfort, they had every luxury, they were prosperous, they had enough food, uh, they began to go astray. Uh, they, they pursued other false idols and gods and did what was right in their own eyes and, and became more and more wicked with each passing generation. And it kind of sounds like the world we know today. No matter which people group God chose, uh, people are people. And, and we fall short. And we have this fallen, sinful nature. 
So what if some are unfaithful? Paul then asks another question. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. By no means, says Paul. And that's great news uh, then and now because God was faithful throughout the, you know, the hundreds of years of Israel's unfaithfulness. As they continued to backslide, their, their sin was on their own heads, but it did not nullify God's faithfulness and his trueness to his own word. And when we you know, look around today at, at some, some of the so-called Christians we see around us today and, and see what they're saying and what they're doing, you know, the things that are consuming their lives, and we see their faithlessness, you know, sometimes they become power hungry in their desires they, or they're fear driven in a mentality. They're being indistinguishable from the rest of the world. You know, their anger, their unreasonableness, their hypocrisy, you know, the false prophecies that so-called Christians make. None of that nullifies God's faithfulness by no means. And praise God for his faithfulness. And may it lead us to seeking him anew in spirit and in truth. Paul goes on, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, as it is written. Where? Written in scripture, in the oracles of God, the divine words of God that Paul has and knows. Why? Because he's a Jew and they had the advantage of being entrusted with the oracles of God. And so Paul now quotes from Psalm 51. And do you know what the psalm was about? I had to read it for myself. It is a psalm of David when Nathan, the prophet of God, confronted David with his sin. For David had taken Bathsheba, he got her pregnant, and then he sent her husband, as she was married, he sent her husband Uriah to his death on the battlefield, commanding Joab to pull all the troops away from Uriah, to put Uriah where the fighting was fiercest and then pull away from him so that he would be killed. That's what David did. So David is writing this psalm, and he's writing it in repentance seeking God's mercy for his transgressions as he sees his sin for what it is, for his own hypocrisy and cruelty he inflicted. And the prophet Nathan revealed this to David. David, who had minimized his sin, and he didn't comprehend his own wickedness and hypocrisy. So now in despair, David completely lays himself bare before God, raising his hand as the guilty party. In Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knew God's word. He knew the law, and yet he broke it. So he says, against you only have I sinned, O God. That's what sin is. It separates us from God. And it's against God alone, the holy and righteous one. So do you see what Paul is doing here by quoting Psalm 51? He is showing King David. King David, the man after God's own heart. The man who loved God, who was loyal to God his whole life. In his actions with Bathsheba, he was faithless, but it did not nullify the faithfulness of God. Paul is saying here in these first four verses that God is true. God is true, and God is just. 
In all of his judgments, God is just. In all of his word, he is true. And our, our, our wrongness only serves to demonstrate his trueness, his righteousness. He is that plumb line. He, he is the leveler to ensure that things are straight and true. But we're all like a bunch of crooked boards. And, and God's word is that level that he puts on top of us to show our crookedness. And so God is shown to be true and just while all the boards are shown to be crooked against his trueness and his righteousness. So when you look around, not everyone who says they're a Christian actually is living it out. And even those who do live it out aren't perfect all the time. David lived faithfully, and then he really, really messed up. But that does not make God less true or less faithful. He is true despite us. And in fact, our unfaithfulness shows God to be true and right. For he is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. And everyone's going to disappoint us. Everyone's going to fall short. That is why we place our hope and our trust in him and upon his word. And not in people, not in leaders, not in governments or these institutions. And you know, everyone today you know, has an opinion, and some you know, are often too strong of ones, considering our finite lives and limited knowledge. And yes, you know, some opinions are better than others. Some are more informed and, and balanced than others. But God's opinion alone is the only one that truly matters. And it's often the last one we seek out when we need advice. How often do you go to God? How often do you go to his word to, to seek out his wisdom and his direction? Seriously. As Paul says, the oracles of God are an advantage in every way. They're an advantage. In every, we have readily available, translated in English for us to read. In every way, they're an advantage. It's simply a matter of whether or not we know them. And if we know them, do we listen to him? We have from God's word the structural drawings uh, to build a home that will last. But do we ignore those instructions and trust in ourselves instead to build our own home. There's a lot of new homes being built here in Kingsburg. That's a great thing. I know uh, several of you who have just built a home or in the process of building a home. That's pretty exciting. But do you want those, the workers who are building your home, um, the foremen, uh, the guys doing, doing the work, do you want them to follow the instructions uh, for your home? you want them to follow the structural drawings for that? Yeah, of course you do. You know, and would you want to be out there, you know, kind of willy-nilly telling them what to do without reading the instructions? You know, it's okay, well, I feel like this board maybe should be over here. And Do we really need all these support beams? I mean, it's just Kingsburg. The home is going to be fine, okay? We're not, like, getting all kinds of crazy earthquakes, right? And, and so, I mean, would you be out there, uh, you know, saying, can't we get away with a little bit less and, and cut these corners here? no. No, we want our home to be solid, firm. And we just have to look at the, the, the account in the garden when Adam and Eve you know, were told by the serpent, eh, you surely are not going to die if you eat of that fruit? And Adam and Eve listened. And he's like, no, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And they, they were drawn into that to be equal with God, to be like him. So they took that fruit. How'd that work out for them? So we're called to trust God in the same way we trust in the generations of building knowledge and wisdom and codes to ensure our home is built well, it's built to last, because God's been around 
just a little bit longer than you or me. In fact, he has no beginning. He has no end. He formed us in our mother's wombs. He formed every molecule in us. He formed our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He gave it to us. So let's trust in him. Let's trust in him. When he gives us instructions for living, let's trust the one who prophesied his death and resurrection, and then by his own authority, he fulfilled it. He might know a little bit more than we do. <laughs> Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Paul goes on asking two more questions and then answers it with a third question. He writes in verse five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? So here, in, in the next few verses, Paul is addressing these, these scoffle, scoffers and these devil's advocates because people argue like this today, right? Especially, you know, I kind of think of teenagers who want to get away with things uh, will argue this way. So too philosophers, uh, but they do it in a way that sounds more intelligent um, and less childish. But it works out to the same thing because here is the huge problem with this sort of reasoning, the sort of thinking that, that can justify saying God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. For if that is so, as Paul says, then how could God judge the world? How could unrighteousness be judged if God can't judge us? And if there is no judge and no judgment, then your actions, the things that you do here, good or evil, they don't matter. They don't ultimately matter if there's no judge. And in a world where there's no judge, Hitler is no more wicked than you or I, for there's no ultimate meaning, no ultimate judgment. It sounds like a pretty terrible world to live in, to be in, that those who are oppressed, taken advantage of, there's going to be no justice for them without God's judgment. So Paul continues this in verse 7. He says, But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being co uh, condemned as a sinner? And, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So we see these are not merely hypothetical questions that Paul's addressing. He's addressing real slanderous accusations form, uh, formed from a deliberate misinterpretation of Scripture and Paul's teachings. Why not do evil so that good may come? And this reminds me of a story uh, from Scripture, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, Joseph's older brothers uh, were jealous of him uh, because he was a favorite, man. He was this dreamer, and he was a younger kid. He was a favorite. And so while they were at work in the fields, he was hanging at home with mom and dad, getting this nice cloak made, you know, the cloak of many colors. And it was just, this was just a recipe for disaster. And so the older brothers, they wanted to kill him. But Reuben saved his life and said, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit in the wilderness um, and leave him there. But Reuben planned later to, to go and pull him out and save him. Uh, so they did what Reuben said. But then this caravan came by and this caravan, that they were on their way to Egypt. And so Judah was like, hey, well, let's not kill him but let's sell him to this caravan and make some money off of him. So they sold him for 20 shekels of silver and the caravan took him and then sold him to Potiphar, who was an officer for Pharaoh. Uh, and hopefully you kind of know the story from there. But much later, a famine came 
But Joseph interpreted a dream God gave to Pharaoh. Uh, that there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Uh, so they implemented, in essence, a, a 20% tax on all food uh, production. And they created these huge storehouses of grain to, to carry the nation through the seven years of famine. And they saved, by doing this, they saved countless lives and they centralized power in Egypt um, and with the Pharaoh. And Joseph was raised to the highest place in the land. And for all intents and purposes, he was running the place. And Pharaoh was happy. He's like, okay, you take care of it, Joseph. Uh, but among the lives uh, that, that Joseph saved were his brothers. He saved the lives of his brothers and, his, and their kids. His brothers who betrayed him. His brothers who sold him into slavery. And so uh, when their father, Jacob, died, we read in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And when Joseph heard this, Joseph wept. He wept. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph forgave his brothers who were responsible for the tears that were shed, who were responsible for the grief of their father, who thought his son Joseph was dead because his own sons lied to him about it. They were responsible for Joseph's slavery and his isolation from family. So now, should Joseph's brothers be commended for selling him into slavery? Because in the end, it led to their salvation during the famine. Should they be commended for the good that came, the restored relationships, the salvation of the people through the food that was stored up, the position of Joseph to provide for them as outsiders? No. No, that would be a senseless thing to say. For only God can be credited with the good that came, the redemption that was brought forth, and the growth of Joseph from being kind of the spoiled, pampered child, being grown into a man of God. It came through his pain. It came through slavery, through betrayal, and through hard labor. For it is in our pain that we draw near to God. In times of comfort and peace, we grow lacks in pursuing God often. But in trials and tribulation, man, he is our rock. So for those who love him, he will take the brokenness of this world and he will grow us through it. So can it be said, what they meant for evil against him, God meant for good? Yes, absolutely. 
And only a glorious and all-powerful God could take what we meant for evil and turn it around for his good purposes. That's true power. That's true glory that only God gets credit for so that no man can boast. We can only boast in him. So hopefully we see that to claim from this story and Paul's teachings, you know, why not do evil so that good may come? Man, it's absolutely slanderous. And Paul is right when he says their condemnation is just for those who say that. But it had to happen, right? This was God's plan, right? Yes. But Jesus says in Mark 14, 21, he says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Did good come from the cross? Absolutely. Absolutely. But woe to that man who betrayed Jesus. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Was God shown more glorious through the cross? Yes. We will never cease to marvel at the cross and the love and the glory of God, that by his wounds we are healed. So it attests to God's greatness that he can bring good from evil. Evil will still be judged. Evil will still be punished. But the evil intended for those who love God is swallowed up by God's goodness. For in Christ there is ultimate victory. There is eternal life. Verse 9, what then? What then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And now Paul is going to proceed to quote and draw from many different Old Testament passages. Um, and he begins with Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And this is just a whole list, man. He's going to string it together. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one, not a single person. Nope, not one is righteous. It goes on. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now quoting from Psalm 5.9, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Psalm 143, The venom of asps is under their lips. Lips, uh, Psalm 10.7, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Proverbs 1.16 and Isaiah 59.7-8, in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So he's grabbing all of these different descriptors of the way that we have all turned aside. And sometimes the context of the passages that he's drawing from uh, are, are talking about Gentiles. Sometimes it's talking about uh, Israel. And sometimes it's talking about both, everybody, Israel and the surrounding nations. So he's showing that the charge is against both Jews and Greeks, meaning everyone. No one is good. People, you know, people can do good things, but people miserably fail the perfect standard of good. And the closer we hold ourselves up to God in his holiness, the more we realize just how far <clears throat> we fall short of God's holiness and his goodness. For Paul says their, their throats are open graves, being filled with deception and curses and bitterness, speaking from the depths of their dead soul and their feet are swift to shed blood. They have not known the way of peace. <clears throat> Paul wraps up this thought here 
saying in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being, no flesh will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is the white glove test, where you run you know, the white glove along the windowsill and it shows the dirt that's present. The glove does not clean the windowsill. It simply demonstrates how dirty the windowsill is. So the law gives knowledge of sin. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount demonstrates how deep it is in us. That even, you know, he said, looking at another person in lust, you're guilty of adultery in your, in your heart. Even hating your, your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder in your heart. That's how deep it runs in us. It's part of our nature. And the call of Christ on us today, because of that, is to repent. The call is to repent. And with the knowledge of sin should come repentance, admitting that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Sinners in need of a Savior. So knowledge of sin should show us how we've offended a holy and a perfect and a just God. Knowledge of sin causes us to rightly call upon the name of Jesus to save us because we're not saved through the law. We cannot be saved through the law, but only through Christ. And we need him so, so badly. It's like the two criminals who in their you know, guilty consciences raise their hands when called out. We too are called to raise our hands, confessing our guilt before God, knowing and trusting that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness when we call upon his name. And then to also make us righteous. But remembering that righteousness doesn't come through the law, it comes through faith in Christ. We can have a spiritual rebirth our dead spirits can be made alive again and we're given the Holy Spirit so that God, the master builder, can take us crooked boards and reshape us into a new creation built to his specifications and to be made part of a beautiful home that's built to last, that's built to last for eternity. And it begins with the ABCs. We've talked about them before. A is to admit and admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Man, if chapters one through three have done anything for us, it should get us to that place. God, I fall short. I need you. And beast to believe. Believe that Jesus is that savior, that he came, he went to the cross, he died, and he rose again. And because of that, he's got all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth and over death and over sin. And in him, we can have forgiveness. I can't in the seas to choose him, choose to follow him. Right, it's not just a one-time thing. You say, oh, I said a prayer a long time ago, and I'm um, good, right? I checked that box. You know, no, this is, a, this is a decision, a lifelong commitment to follow after him, to grow in faith in him, because Jesus loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. So he's going to call us on this journey to become more like himself in all things. So I encourage you, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. So take that step, man. Take that step. God is longing to draw us towards himself. So would you please pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word, for your word that reveals to us our desperate need for you. Your word that reveals to us that you are a loving Father, that you are a righteous and good God, that you are just in all things. And Lord, because of that, we stand before you condemned. So Lord, we seek your forgiveness. God, we admit before you this morning that we are sinners. We fall short, God. Our thoughts and our hearts condemn us. God, our tongues, our throats are an open grave. God, would you remake us into the likeness of your son, Jesus? We thank you that we can share in his resurrection. Lord, so we place all of our hope, all of our faith in him today, and we choose to follow him. We choose to follow him. Lord, give us the strength to do that. Give us the boldness to do that. So we thank you, Lord, that you're with us, that you're for us, that we can trust in you. Go before us this week, we ask, O oh Lord. And we ask that in all things you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.